wow. I don't know. I don't know about that at all. With heroin, yeah. even less. You know, so to me, it feels like I understand the feeling that we need to legalize stuff because it it, it does create a black market. On the other hand, um, I'm not sure that we have um, a corporate capitalist um, marketing uh, culture in this country that can be trusted sure. to behave in any kind of ethical or moral way when it comes to drugs that they see are extraordinarily addictive that the brain human brain responds to in powerful powerful ways and not use that opportunity to make them even more addictive you are listening to the real leaders podcast where leaders keep it real i'm your host kevin edwards and that perspective comes from sam quinones a veteran reporter on immigration gangs drug trafficking and the border, who lets us into the world of drug trafficking and addiction in America. So, in today's episode, Quinones reveals shocking information about the rise of fentanyl, whether or not a border wall decreases trafficking, and the leadership needed to abstain from an addicted society. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up. For the real, Sam Quinones. Enjoy. Three, two, one. And welcome everyone to the Real Leaders Podcast with keys from the keynote speakers here at the Agents of Change Summit. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining me today is Sam Quinones, uh, the uh, journalist and author of Dreamland. Sam, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Sam, what is your background in covering drug immigration? Uh, well, I, I've been a reporter 33 years now. I, uh, 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 what led me to write about those, I lived in Mexico for 10 years. Uh, I was a freelance writer down there for a long time. I spent a lot of time writing about immigration back then, not so much about drug trafficking. Okay. But the two are very connected in a lot of, lot of ways. Uh, then after uh, 10 years doing that, I came back to the United States, came back to L.A., which is kind of roughly my hometown. Got a job at the L.A. Times, and on... When I worked for the LA Times, they put me on a, a team of reporters that was covering the drug war out of Mexico. My job was to cover how drugs crossed the border and then where they went after they crossed the border specifically. And, and my first, um, one of my first stories, I began to focus on, on the, the rise in heroin trafficking. And I could not explain that because I thought heroin trafficking was, you know, heroin was like this dead drug. Nobody really would want to use heroin again, right? I mean, after mm. the 70s, people learned how awful it was. And, mm. and yet you could see it, it was being seized in greater, greater quantities on the border by the DEA. And, and that meant that more people were using it in the United States. And so I couldn't understand that. And that, that got me into this whole story about our opioid epidemic. And, and uh, I thought I was onto this fairly large story with, this, uh, with the, the heroin trafficking. But what I didn't understand, what I came to learn pretty quickly, was that all of that was due to in a, a much bigger story, which was the transformation of pain management in America mm, to, okay. to, uh, with, with opioid painkillers. And that that massive prescribing of those painkillers for all manner of pain and in right. huge bottles and lots of refills, et cetera, et cetera, created a, a new market because they're chemically uh, 
uh, sure. chemical cousins yeah. to heroin, it created a whole new market for, for heroin. And so that began this whole process of, of trying to understand how we got to where we are with this epidemic. Okay, so you're referring to the 2002 AMA, let's treat pain. There's a fifth in. vital sign. Yeah. Uh, okay. There was a whole bunch. It started really in 1990s, I think, with OxyContin, the arrival right. of OxyContin. But before that, even with pain specialists saying we are under treating pain, right. we do a poor job of treating pain. The truth is, they, they weren't wrong. There was some truth to that. But uh, they, you know, they they uh, they pushed this idea joined by pharmaceutical companies right. saying yes, we need to do this. Not coincidentally, they were the ones who made those pills, so they want people to use more of them. And uh, the the key idea was that these pills are virtually non-addictive when used to treat pain. When you're a pain patient, you cannot get addictive. That was that was what was taught. By pain specialists, it was taught in medical schools for a good long time. No longer. Oh, really? But oh, yeah, yeah. That's how it became accepted dogma throughout the country, and that's why we had, beginning in the mid 1990s, you see this uh, taking off of of uh, of, uh, of uh, prescribing of of um, of pain pain pills, and the, the the numbers rise every year, very very high numbers every year for uh, 15, 20 years. The classic case is someone that hurts their back and has surgery and gets prescribed oxycodone or wisdom teeth and then they love it so much and then they get cut off and they move to the street heroin so that is a, a, a that's definitely happened many many times yes on the okay. other, there's also there's more to it than that though i think sure uh, one one thing is that so many people got prescribed so many pills a lot of these pills ended up in in um in uh medicine cabinets people didn't throw these right. away yeah. and they would get pilfered by the kids in the house or, or workers at the house. A lot of those pills ended up in the black market, even though the person may have taken only two or three uh, of the bottle, that whole bottle might end up in the, in the black market. And we think of wisdom teeth, perfect example. Uh, every year in America, according to the Dental Association, there's uh, uh, something like five million people get their wisdom teeth out. Well, for a lot of years, everyone, most of those folks, not everyone, but most of those folks we're going home with big bottles of Percocets or Vicodin or Oxycodone or Oxycontin. And, and a lot of that was just not, not used. Or those, those people would either get addicted or they would not use all the pills. And frequently those pills would be just pilfered and end up in the black market. But whatever the case, all those pills that were being used were prescribed to somebody, whether it was actually the person using them or not is, a, is another question. Right, yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's been, become quite the epidemic. I mean, uh, I think... What's so fascinating about now is that not only uh, do you see it uh, in the black market, but you see it in uh, kids in high school that sure. are taking it from their parents, and usually some of the drugs being laced with like fentanyl, and like fentanyl's a yeah, uh, right. No, well, what I think was happened, what happened then is that um, this uh, awakened the underworld, particularly the Mexican drug trafficking underworld, oh, okay. to a new market that they really had not had written had written off largely the heroin market up until that point um in the mid 90s was really very very small in the united states it was not profitable people didn't people in, in mexico people wanted wanted to to traffic cocaine mm. marijuana of course always cocaine sometimes methamphetamine but heroin was it's looked on as a very scuzzy drug in Mexico anyway, but, but there was no profit in it. And so what this did was create a new, an enormous new population of people who were opiate addicted. And that meant the, 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 the underworld of Mexico figured this out. Hmm. And they began first 
trafficking heroin in much every year. More, that's what I was seeing when I got into this. Every year, larger amounts, more, more seizures at the border, but that meant much more was getting in. And so people were using, were using heroin. But then they figured out, actually, the real profit is in fentanyl. Fentanyl is a synthetic yeah. opiate, so you can opioid. So you can make it in a in a in a in a in a lab. Uh, lab. Yeah. You don't have to hire uh, peasant farmers. You don't have to have land. Depend on the weather. All of the very much less risk involved, and you can make it any time of the year, any day or night, whenever you want. If you as long as you have the chemicals to do so, and they began to realize that the profit margin too was spectacular. Is so much more potent than morphine or heroin is fentanyl, that you just make a very little amount and it was hugely profitable. So they began to figure out, oh, this is like the no-brainer for us. Wow, we'll just forget. So they began to put uh, traffic fentanyl here, illicit fentanyl made in these labs, made in kind of places that, that are not really pharmaceutical industry grade places, and, and Traffic it here, and then people on the ground, the traffic, the dealers on the ground frequently buy it to boost whatever else they have. If they have some heroin that's not that's not very potent, put a little bit of fentanyl in, boom. But if but if you want to get a a, a good a, a daily a daily customer, put the, put uh, put fentanyl in whatever it is you got, marijuana, mm. methamphetamine. They'll get addicted to the opiates. They'll have to come back every day. If you if you are, are using methamphetamine, you can vary your use. Okay, I'm not going to use today. Uh, I used the last five days. I'm going to stop for a few days. You cannot do that with opiate. Opiate addiction is, uh, is like relentless. It's every single day. And so if you add fentanyl to those, to those drugs, you are creating, in a sense, an opiate addict. And that, op that opiate addict has to return every day for his marijuana that is now laced with opiate mm -hmm. or methamphetamine or cocaine. And that's why you're seeing also an enormous rise in the death toll too. The deaths were very bad with the pills, when it was just pills. And then it got worse when it was just, when it was heroin as a substitute. And then fentanyl has taken it up to stratospheric uh, levels. Right, because it's like 80 to 200 times more powerful. Or exactly, and, and so much more easy to smuggle too. That's right. the other thing. The uh, really? So a little packet, like maybe the deck of cards or something like that, it is a hugely profitable. You could put it anywhere. And the dogs generally, you can, you can cover it up so the dogs can't smell it as well. Um, it, there's all manner of reasons why it's a no-brainer for tr Mexican, tr for traffickers of any kind uh, to send this stuff. Plus then what you begin to have on top of that is you begin to have local Americans here in the United States figure out that with the dark web, there are lots of companies in China that will sell them and mail it to them through the, through the mail. So you have two sources, really. Most of it's coming from China. It's coming to, from China. Most of to, it. Most to, of fentanyl to, is coming from China? To Mexico, and oh, they're, Mexico. they're doing it. Now the Mexicans are making it increasingly. Uh, Initially, it was Chinese fentanyl coming, coming over. But whatever the case, it's coming from China, being mailed in the U.S. mail to Americans here who are then using it, mixing it with some something and calling it heroin. Everyone now knows it's fentanyl. Or they're shipping it to, to Mexico and Mexico is sending it up. Or they're mixing, making the, they're shipping the chemicals to make fentanyl to Mexico and then Mexico makes it. It's a, it's a complicated thing. It's all part of the global economy of the underworld, basically, right. is what's, what's, what's going on. So Sam, we've all heard the stories about like El Chapo, the holes, the tunnels, the submarines. Right. What is the craziest story that you've heard about and how are drugs getting across the border? 
Well, I, I think one of the interesting things is this great debate over whether or not we need a, a border wall. Uh, to me, this is always very interesting because, um, first of all, it, it depends what you want a border wall for. A border wall can, has, and can and has stopped um, people from crossing. You have much less illegal immigration coming from Mexico now. Uh, we're, we're, we're about 20 miles from the Mexico uh, border right now, and there are two, two walls there. Uh, one wall starts in the ocean, 50 yards into the ocean, and goes for 14 miles, breaking for border crossings, illegitimate border crossings. The other one is about 100 yards inland into the United States, and it goes for about four or five miles, the most populated areas of Tijuana. It's also got sensors on the ground. They got cameras. They got agents, dogs, all that kind of stuff. That has essentially stopped illegal immigration. That was that was the, one of the biggest walls working. Right. Yeah, yeah. The biggest crossing uh, in the on the entire 2,000 mile border was right down wow. right down here. That doesn't happen anymore. And you can see that from the price if, to cross now. It used to be like a, a, a movie ticket. Everybody pays the same price, 200 bucks, they take you into L.A. Hmm. You're in a car with 40, 50 people, 20 people, whatever it is, they take you into L.A. Oh, I didn't know that. Now, it's a boutique industry designing a crossing solution for you, and it costs five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, no longer 200 bucks, hmm. because the wall has made it impossible to, to mass migrate lots of illegal, illegal uh. folks. At the same time, though, that those walls exist all along the border. There's a misnomer, the, mis the myth that there's no walls. There are walls all along the border, seven, 800 miles of, bo of, of border wall right now. Um, at the same time, though, as, as the price for crossing has, has skyrocketed in the last 10 years or so, 15 years, the price of drugs has, has plummeted and the potency has increased and the prevalence. Of, and that's because drugs come through walls. Right. They, they are trafficked in ingenious ways in carburetors and people's bodies and cans of chili and whatever you can think of, literally almost whatever you can think of, they traffic it. And so to build a, a, a wall, in my opinion, is a, it ha you need to know why you're building it. Build, to build a wall to stop drug trafficking is, um, I think, a fool's errand. I, I think, I think what, what stops drug trafficking, what best can stop drug trafficking is, is collaboration between uh, governments, the same as, as, way, as if you'd have a no. collaboration between one sheriff's department and another and a police department over here. And some, you, would, you would never say, well, we'd never do that. We all want to fight this alone, you know. Um, uh, but that's how we do it with Mexico and the United States. We both both governments have have presidents who are not prone to collaborating with the other too much. I don't think seems that way anyway. We'll see. But 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 I, I think that the only that, that you have to understand why you're building these walls. So I th find this whole thing very interesting to watch as you see uh, um, these debates. You can stop illegal immigration. You cannot really stop. We have not done any. Halting to the flow flow of drugs and the price in both cases shows that that's that's the case. It's high, it's extraordinarily high now for crossing uh, people. Okay. It's very very cheap to get drugs into the United so States. So walls limit immigration, but not drugs. Okay. If they did, if the walls limited drugs, we wouldn't have drugs in prisons and jails. Okay. And so, we do. So when you mean the collaboration of governments, I guess one theory that pops to fight this my head. together. To, 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 that's the only way, and it, it right. works. It, wor it does work. It's not very well publicized, but there are lots of cases where, where DEA and local folks in Mexico, where local authorities here 
um, or collaborate to to really put a, put a stop to some of the more important uh, drug trafficking. It needs to be far more far more extensive. But well, there's always happen. there's always this debate about black markets and legalization, right? You know, driving <laughs> consumer demand essentially. Yeah. And there was there was a, uh, an interview I saw actually with our president and the heads of uh, the vape companies, the, the jewels right. of the world, talking about kind of this this problem. And his big fear was the black market. Do you have an opinion on the legalization of drugs and what that would do for the black markets and the shipping? Well, it's a very complicated story, and I think uh, sure. I think I'm uh, kind of going back and forth a little bit on this now. I yeah. do believe, though, that um, uh, I used to think that demand spurred these things on. My feeling now is from the opioid epidemic, the clear, clear lesson is that supply starts it. This, oh. We did not have a massive raging uh, population of, of opiate addicts before pharmaceutical companies began Can't promoting the, the stuff, doctors began prescribing it, and the supply began to rise. And after every dent, you know, wisdom tooth extraction, you got huge amounts of dope to, to mm -hmm. take home with you and they get refills, et cetera. So we did not have this problem before. There was this enormous new supply creating new demand. Um, <clears throat> I understand it is absolutely true that illegal drugs uh, uh, usually create an underworld. We saw that with alcohol. We've seen that with, with the illegal drugs. On the other hand, I have to say, nothing about American corporate capitalism gives me any kind of faith that they will be able to take l newly legalized drugs and behave morally with them. Hmm. Look, there, there's all kinds of other substances that are moderately addictive that they have refined to be extraordinarily addictive. Nicotine, social media apps, gambling, video games, sugar, hmm. on and on. There's a whole bunch of these things that American capitalism has said, we know how to market. We know how to refine these things so they are extraordinarily potent on the human brain, the human brain. And we're going to entrust American corporate capitalism with methamphetamine. Yeah. Ah, wow. I don't know. I don't know about that at all. With heroin, yeah. even less. You know. So to me, it feels like I understand the feeling that we need to legalize stuff because it 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 does create a black market. On the other hand, um. I'm not sure that we have um, a corporate capitalist um, marketing uh, culture in this country that can be trusted sure. to behave in any kind of ethical or moral way when it comes to drugs that they see are extraordinarily addictive, that the brain, human brain responds to in powerful, powerful ways and not use that opportunity to make them even more addictive. So when you say this collaboration then, what are you proposing? Are they regulations on opiates? Are they an integrative approach to exposure uh, with oh, drugs? Do, do you mean a collaboration with regard to Mexico? To and Mexico and the United States. You were talking. About I today. think. I think. First of all, we need to understand um, how what's already working and just expand that. And and there are lots of middle level collaborations that are really working well. The president, to his credit pressured Mexico to allow the Mexican Marines, the Navy, it's really called the Navy, um, to get involved in the, again in this drug fight. That's a very effective um, organization that the, the current president of Mexico decided should not be involved in the drug fight. That's a crazy idea. They were very, very good at their jobs. Very sharp, very um, uh, a clean uh, agency. And they needed, they, they were sidelined for the last year or so, something like that. Now, news reports, 
uh, he said, okay, now we're going to get them more involved in the game again. And that's, that's absolutely, all of this stuff needs to happen. We have these massive, uh, in Mexico has these massive drug capos like Chapo Guzman and others that are bigger than Chapo that you don't even, we don't really know, like Mayo Zambada, who is a partner of Chapo Guzman. Nobody really knows who this guy is because he wants to be quiet. He's down in Sinaloa too. He's a very, very, probably even more potent uh, a figure hmm. than, than Chapo is. Uh, we have all these guys allowed to grow enormous into these oligarchs. That does not happen in the United States because we take these guys down. Right. We cut off the heads always. Does it mean that there will be no more? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But it's, it's part of criminal law enforcement. You know, I'm reading two books right now that are very interesting in this regard. One is a book called The Five Families, about the five Italian mafia families of oh, New York nice. City. And the other is called El Traidor, which is a, called the, the, the Traitor, which is a, a, a book about the son of Mayo Zambada, who is uh, arrested and, and is in American prison. And he wrote a diary, and it's about his diary and that kind of thing. In both cases, though, the, 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 the lesson is if you ignore these, these underworld figures and let them grow and just say, well, it, who cares, or they're just selling dope somewhere else, not here, whatever the case that they will grow into extraordinary threats that they don't need to be, that they can be very easily nipped in the bud if you get them early sure. enough. Yeah, wow. In the case of the, of the Mexican uh, traffickers, the Mexican government uh, long ago was not doing anything. On the contrary, it was fomenting. It was encouraging these guys. Jeez. And it was part of the mix. Some elements of the Mexican government were part of the mix. They were Threats. getting the, the, the payoffs <laughs> and so on. <laughs> when it comes to the five families, the, the, the truth is very interesting as well. The FBI purposefully ignored the mafia. Didn't, huh? Were they paying them? The no, I think it was more that J. Edgar Hoover Fair early fact. on in the, in the life of the FBI was afraid of taking on this organization, was more comfortable taking on Pretty Boy Floyd and the bank robbers, which needed to be taken on too, um, and that, that also thought that maybe his agents would be corrupted by this enormous organization, mm. and, and also wanted to focus on communists and, and uh, people with really almost no threat to the American uh, uh, people. Uh, spent a lot of time uh, uh, in, 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 uh, uh, investigating uh, Martin Luther King, you know, and let those guys fester and fester and fester and grow. It wasn't until the 1980s when they, uh, the FBI actually got involved and in really, in a sustained, consistent way, attacking those guys. By then, they'd been in, they'd been in power. They'd been formed for 50 years. Hmm. And so, to me, it feels like Whenever you allow these guys to just go and do whatever they want, that it is happens. really not yeah. a good idea. Maybe, maybe politically feasible, maybe, maybe, maybe fine to say this, maybe you don't want to use the resources, but in the long run, it'll cost you more. Well, that's what you're talking about. The supply starts it, and I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah, and I think the heroin in New York City was mm -hmm. all due to the, mob, the Italian mob, and we did nothing to, to stop the Italian mob early on in their, in their lives and, and for many, many years afterwards. You mentioned corruptness. You mentioned uh, the United States cuts the heads off. What type of leadership is needed amongst the corporate uh, corporations as well as uh, government and public officials? Well, I mean, I think I think there needs to. I'm, I'm not sure. If I, there, I mean, it's a big, broad question. Um, I, I think uh, um, uh, corporate officials need to understand that they, many of them, have created enormously uh, addictive products already that are priming, that are creating addictive propensities in Americans. Again, with sugar, with um, nicotine, 
with uh, alcohol, with game gambling and video games and social media apps. I think those folks need to understand that they are part of a constellation. And Mexican tr drug traffickers, as much as we hate them and vilify them, they're right next to Mexican drug traffickers for what they've done with sugar, say, or alcohol or nic nicotine. I think we, we need to understand, corporate officials need to understand their role in creating a propensity for, 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 uh, for addiction. Interesting. And, 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 and marketing them, you know, uh, Wendy's. Wendy's has an entire food line, food made to crave. Now, that sounds to me like a motto uh, uh, for the Sinaloa drug cartel. No doubt. You yeah. know, this is made to crave. You're going to crave our dope. So, Tom, uh, we talked about a lot today. We talked right. about the immigration, the, the wall, the, the drug use, the fentanyl, a lot. Right. And then you wrapped it up kind of with leadership. So the last question I have for you is, Tom, is what is your definition of a real leader? Of a real leader? I suppose someone who, who understands through deep immersion in a topic or a business or an issue, understands that issue deeply and understands when the truth of that issue is something that people don't want to hear and nevertheless says it anyway. Mm. Um, I believe that you only come to that point through deep immersion. I, I've felt this on my own hmm. journalism. Uh, you, you don't get anywhere in understanding a particularly complicated topic without immersion. You have to immerse, and it has to be profound. You know, it has to be constant. And, right. and when you get to immersion in it, then you understand what policies matter and what policies can work can, and what yeah. policies won't and what policies, when you talk about them, um, uh, sound good but don't really do anything, you know. Definitely. Uh, to me, that's a, a that to me is a real leader. Somebody who says uh, this this won't work. I know what will. It may and and then works towards making that idea politically uh, viable, so that there's a constituency for it. Convincing people, getting out there and say. We don't need this. We need this. Why do I think that? Because X, Y, Z, I've studied this. I've been involved in this. Mm. And we need to move this way. That is a real leader uh, to me. But it all grows from, I think, deep immersion in the topic. Well, Tom, thanks for immersing our audience uh, in the opioid epidemic today. I learned a ton from you. I appreciate your time and all your efforts that you do to make the world a better place. I'm Quinones. I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, immerse yourselves, people, in something that you enjoy. Form your own opinions and always keep it real. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Sam Quinones. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the Real Leaders Podcast, make sure you do so now so you never miss an episode with a real leader from around the world. Also, folks, most of these episodes are streamed live to our Crowdcast platform. All you got to do is go online to real-leaders.com podcasts and live events so you can RSVP and ask questions for leaders like Sam. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and always keep it real.